Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Roger Trigg. I was at a meeting not long ago where a woman suddenly burst out, You can't do that! This is a Christian country! And I looked and I thought, gosh, I don't know if I would have been willing to say that. Because, uh, I mean, people are rather thinking of that's imposing our will on other people. And then I stopped and looked at her. And she was a visiting Pakistani lawyer, a Muslim, who hadn't been in the country very long, was looking at it from the outside, and she'd come with expectations about the principles that would operate. And she was aghast that we weren't living up to them. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Roger Trigg is the academic director of the new Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life at Oxford University. His recent book, Religion in Public Life, Must Religion Be Privatized?, has been widely read and inspired an academic conference on the subject in 2007. Roger, welcome to the show. Good. Well, it's good to be here. So let me read for you a quote from U.S. President Barack Obama, and then I'll have you respond to it. So he said recently that, quote, democracy demands that the religiously motivated translate their concerns into universal rather than religion-specific values. This means that their proposals must be subject to argument and amenable to reason. Now, I may be opposed to abortion for religious reasons, but if I seek to pass a law banning the practice, I can't simply point to the teachings of my church or evoke God's will. I have to explain why abortion violates some principle that is accessible to people of all faiths, including those with no faith at all, end quote. So that seems to me like that's kind of a standard view of things since the Enlightenment in some Western countries. Um, but how would you respond to that kind of perspective? Well, uh, there are bits of it I agree with and bits of it I disagree with. I mean, there, there are a lot of philosophical assumptions. Of course, basically, I, I'm a philosopher, and I tend to look at the assumptions people are making. There is an assumption there that religiously inspired statements can't make universal claims. Now, that doesn't mean that they're universally accepted, but it would certainly, I think, suggest that some claims are claims to truth that everyone can examine, even if, I mean, if you're an atheist, you, you would uh, reject it. So, so I firmly believe that all religious claims, particularly in the public sphere, must, in his words, be subject to argument and amenable to reason. What I'm much more doubtful about is the assumption that seems to lie behind what he's saying is that religious claims of their nature are not subject to argument and not amenable to reason. So what he really is buying into there is uh, this clear distinction between faith and reason. Reason is what we all share. Reason is about truth. Faith is about something peculiar and private that is something for the individual, which actually then means you could never say any faith is false, let alone say it's true, because it's just a private thing. It's a subjective thing or perhaps relative to a group or, or society. So I want to keep reason very much in play on religious claims, and I want to be able to give religious people the ability to make them in public and defend them, and I want others to have the right to challenge them and deny them. Uh, but, but what he's doing is really pushing religion into a ghetto, and that's very dangerous because what happens then is because some religious people can't make their claims in public, then it's a bit like a pressure cooker. I mean, it's all bubbling there. That, that, that They get resentful. They can't take part in public rational debate, and uh, they'll try and use other means to influence the public. I mean, that can apply in a democracy, and it can apply elsewhere as well. I mean, of course, abortion itself is a, a very difficult issue. And in the end, I suspect it comes back to a lot of uh, religious and other views that there's something important about the life of the unborn child or the fetus, in which you call it rather, I suppose, betrays what you already have decided. Uh, that seems to me to be perfectly reasonable and open to discussion. And uh, what I don't like about Obama is, is, again, the idea that all religious claims are just categorically evoking the will of God or just pointing to the teachings of the church as if neither of those have got anything to do with reason. I'm afraid that, I mean, I rather would like to see reason and uh, the teachings of a church or invocations of God going together. I mean, after all, for somebody who believes in God, God is the fount of reason. 
Right. So there oughtn't to be a distinction there. And those who pe- people who believe in natural law, they would say, well, look, God has created the world in ways which we can point to that other people can recognize, even if they don't accept that God created the world like that. At least they can see the world is like that. So anyway, what in sum, what I'm trying to say is that I think that a lot of religious claims aren't just religious and private. They should be susceptible to rational debate, rational criticism, and should be out in the open, and it's much better if they are. Hmm. So maybe the strong way of interpreting Obama would be to hear him saying that religious claims in general are not amenable to reason, but maybe a softer way to interpret him would be to say, well, yes, the religious claims, they're argued about with reason, but in history, they've just been so intractable, where you've, you end up getting the Christians saying, well, the Bible says this, so we've got to do it that way, and then you get all the Muslims saying, well, the Quran says the opposite, so we've got to do it that way. So how would you respond to that worry about how to build a pluralistic society in which we allow arguments like appeal to scripture or appeal to God's will to inform our policy. If you go back to the beginnings of the Enlightenment, which I would place in 17th century England, and particularly with the start of modern science, the founding of the Royal Society, the work of people like Newton and Boyle, that came in a particular theological and philosophical context where people like John Locke and people he was influenced by working in Cambridge felt very strongly that England had been wrecked by a civil war, which religion, I mean, it wasn't the only cause, but it was certainly a powerful element in it, and that the way out of this was to emphasize the role of reason. But they didn't regard reason as being alien to theology or to God. They sure. But believed it as, as possibly part of that. So that in a phrase that the Cambridge Platonist who influenced John Locke used, and he uses it sometimes, reason is the candle of the Lord. In other words, reason is grounded in God. So there you have, a, there are two views coming out of the Enlightenment. In other words, you've got the later view, which is much more aggressively atheist and says reason is opposed to faith because reason is science-based. It's Uh, something that's provable, and that that fed into the whole idea of scientific method. But there's an earlier view that regards reason as perhaps being a little bit more expensive, as being grounded in the notion of God, enabling science to take place because science is looking at a world that's ordered because God made it like that, and that was certainly the belief of people like Newton at the start of, of modern science. And so reason there is something that religious people can turn to not as an enemy, but as a possible ally, recognizing that it provides perhaps ground on which they can meet people who disagree with them. But it isn't something that enables them to switch off out of religion. It's, it comes out of their theological beliefs, a very firm belief in free will as well, which I think goes with a strong view of rationality. So I'm very suspicious of people who want to oppose reason to religion. Now, by that, I don't mean that that proves that religion is true. All I'm saying is that reason should be subject to the canons of rationality and should be enabled to look, be looked at rationally without just, in fact, defining it out of existence. Um, now, you get pe- plenty of people nowadays who want to define it out of existence. I uh, was an undergraduate in Oxford in the latter days of logical positivism, and I was taught by Professor A.J. Eyre, who was known for the verification principle that came out of the Vienna Circle. Yes. In other words, that nothing is meaningful unless it can be verified scientifically. And he adopted this criterion quite narrowly and that meant, of course, you can't verify the existence of God. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, I don't think it was very acceptable in the end in the philosophy of science, even because they wanted to deal with theoretical entities that can't be verified in the observational way that they wanted to. And you can't verify the truth of the verification principle itself. So um, that gradually petered out as an influence in the philosophy of science, but it still lives on in some people's minds, uh, people who grew up at that time and were educated at that time, and it influences other disciplines still. And you see it, particularly, for instance, in the work of Richard Dawkins in his uh, recent book, The God Delusion, um, where he implicitly defines reason in such a way that it absolutely rules out any notion of God. It isn't that rationally he's saying, well, there could be a God and there isn't, let's look at it. He's saying that once you use reason, once you use evidence, you're no longer able to talk in a religious way. Evidence is opposed to notions of faith. 
Well, I would prefer a wider notion of reason and, and faith where you don't define evidence in such a narrow way that faith can't depend on reason before you've started the argument. I'm not saying Dawkins isn't right in his conclusions, that, that, that that's a long argument. Uh, but what I resent is the way he defines the terms so that his conclusions have to be right. Sure. Well, and I think a lot of the new atheists would really prefer that logical positivism had survived the 60s or whatever. But I, I have to say, yeah. I, you know, of course, I completely agree with you about reason not necessarily being opposed to religion. You can't read very much Christian philosophy and still think that, I think, you know, I mean, you can't, how can you, even Aquinas, but today, you know, if you're reading, you know, Plantinga or Alston or somebody, it's very difficult to come away from that thinking that there's not reason involved in, in Christianity. Yes, and of course, I mean, I, well, I come from England, and there the, the, the Church of England has always rested very much on the idea that there are three, in a sense, prop for religion. There's scripture, there's tradition, and there's reason and they all should go ahead in tandem. You shouldn't, in fact, emphasize one at the expense of the other. And I think Obama, you see, and he, well, what he was talking about in, originally and said, I can't point to the teachings of my church or evoke God's will, is in a sense just saying, well, you can't just appeal to tradition or you just can't appeal to, uh, to scripture and uh, the alleged revealed will of God. Well, I'm saying he actually leaves out the other strand, uh, which has definitely been there through the history of Christianity, and certainly in strands like that of the Anglican Church, um, that reason also is important. And I mean, I think most Roman Catholics would agree with that particularly too. So the kind of fundamentalism that says it's in the Bible, and that's what we must do because it's in the Bible, and we're not using our reason, although I think they are in interpreting the Bible, is actually a very blinkered view and not, I think, even the mainstream theological view. Well, so what would you say about this weaker interpretation of Obama's quote, which would say that Obama's not opposing reason to religion, but rather he's saying, in practice, religious debates are just intractable because we've got the, the Christians saying, look, we've got to follow our reasoned interpretation of the Bible, and the Muslims are saying, look, we've got to follow our reasoned interpretation of the Quran, and we'll just never get anywhere if that's the way we allow our public debates to be informed. Yes, but I think most people indulging in these kinds of public debates are a bit more reasonable than that. I mean, there are, of course, extremists. Uh, who are, are difficult to, to deal with. But um, particularly if we live in a democracy, I think most people understand that in the end, when you come into a public debate, you have to compromise with people who disagree with you. Now, I, I think the, the important point there is that you can bring your own views into the debate and have them examined. You can't be told you mustn't bring them in. Now, there is a strong current in modern thinking about religion that suggests, and I think it's there in what Obama says, that you shouldn't bring religious issues into public. Um, the G German philosopher Habermas says that the legislature should leave any religious views he or she have outside the legislative chamber. Now, I think that's very unhealthy. I think it's much better if people are explicit about what they're concerned about. And I think that people's views, if they're very strongly and deeply held, should be respected. Now, by that, I don't mean that we have to do what they say, but that if, for instance, you have a law, let's go back to abortion, you have a law uh, about uh, abortion, which goes against the conscience of a significant group in society, then I think it's reasonable to try and accommodate their conscience so that at least you don't make a Catholic doctor perform abortions, for instance. So I think that there's a way of living together in society, recognizing one's own beliefs. And I think one of the troubles is that people aren't allowed to bring their beliefs into public play, to have them recognized, even if in the end people don't follow them and don't agree with them. At least they have them and, and I think that um, religious freedom is, uh, particularly in an American context, it's always been called the first freedom. I think it's an incredibly important freedom. And by religious freedom, of course, I mean the freedom to deny religion as well as the freedom to be committed to it. But if, in fact, you ride roughshod over that and think that what people hold most deeply isn't to be bothered about, then we're really challenging the individual conscience in a way I don't think a democracy should, because democracy should be built 
on the power of the individual conscience. So, Roger, would you go so far as to say that when, say, President Obama is considering a piece of policy or the British Parliament is considering a piece of policy, they should consider as among the arguments that they weigh things like passages of various religious scriptures and things like this? Well, no, I, I don't think they should get involved in theological debate. But I do think that they should listen to the convictions of religiously committed people. So, I mean, for instance, if you had a Muslim member of parliament who felt very deeply about something, I don't object to them getting up and saying, now, look, Muslims feel deeply about this because... Now, that's a political fact that one ought to take account of. One needn't necessarily start saying, well, are they right? Because other people may think there are other reasons. I mean, there's one thing right about what uh, Obama is saying, that I think once one is in the public sphere, if one has powerful reasons that everybody can share, from a, a generally a, a kind of not just a tactful point of view, but from a politically savvy point of view, it's a good idea to try and meet them on their ground. So it's no good just banging the table and saying the Quran says something when you're speaking to an audience, 99% of whom aren't Muslim. Um, and the same thing applies to references to the Bible. But if they could deal, produce from their theologically held views reasons that would attract other people and say, look, this harms people, this uh, affects human flourishing. Look what it does to families. Look what it does here. Look what it does there. Or we believe in marriage because... And other people would say, well, yes, we don't share their theological views, but we do see where what they're saying has some sense in how these things work out in society. Then I think that one should therefore be willing to argue and discuss that. And certainly if people can find reasons that give common ground with other people, that's a much better way of proceeding than just on really emphasizing the things that divide us in the first place. Yeah. So Obama's right there. I mean, one should try and see it search for the common ground rather than emphasizing what everybody knows will divide us. And that's why, of course, uh, traditionally, uh, I mean, I'm not a Catholic, but traditionally Catholics have uh, referred to the importance of natural law because they think that's something that is open to everyone. It doesn't involve a kind of signing up to a belief in God. Or, uh, people can look at the world and see how that works and that therefore people will be harmed in working and behaving in one way will be benefited in working in another. And therefore, they ought to be able to point to the harm and the benefits rather than just saying that as a matter of principle, we're against this. Well, Roger, you seem to argue in your book that the equality and tolerance that we in the West enjoy today can't survive in a philosophical vacuum because we would sink into relativism. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, of course, I'm all in favor of uh, equality and tolerance in the sense that these are, are terms that I suppose everybody would sign up to. But I think they're slippery terms because they can gradually mean more than you originally thought they would. Of course, in the field of toleration, I mean, a lot of people would say that's not enough. I mean, when you look at the foundation of the United States and people like Madison, who was drawing up the U.S. Constitution, they firmly believed that religious toleration wasn't enough. I mean, he was coming from a context in Virginia where the Church of England had been established, and he thought that merely tolerating other people wasn't enough. Everybody ought to be free and on an equal footing. So, therefore, he was against not just religious establishment by the Church of the Church of England in Virginia, but any subsidy from taxation even for all uh, religious bodies. So uh, some people would say that toleration, as I said, isn't enough because that suggests that you're standing somewhere and tolerating others, whereas everybody ought to be on equal footing. Right. And that then leads people, as many people do now, to say what's important is absolute equality between all beliefs. Although, uh, certainly in a democratic society, I think everybody ought equally to be able to enter into an argument and offer any reasons. If the state stands in a neutral position, treating all beliefs equally, I'm not quite sure how that makes sense in the long run, because it has to, in the end, make some judgments about what is good and bad, what is tolerable and intolerable, what, in fact, is going to undermine democracy. For instance, if you take, and this is one of the problems about freedom of religion, you can't give an absolute freedom for all religiously inspired beliefs to, in fact, be allowed. 
because, for instance, I mean, there have been cases, and there still are, unfortunately, of child sacrifice motivated by religions, I mean, particularly of African religions. There have been cases of people coming from Nigeria and sacrificing children and bodies being found in this country, in England. Uh, so uh, you uh, would find, therefore, that there are some things that are allegedly motivated by religion that no civilized state could possibly allow. Mm. So that means that it isn't enough to say, well, we should respect all beliefs equally because some beliefs are going to be so horrific and the practices that manifest them are going to be so objectionable that they have to be ruled out. And of course, the great problem with freedom of religion is in drawing the line and allowing as much leeway for freedom as you can, whilst at the same time recognizing there is a line to be crossed. Now, but my point is that this means that the state has to stand somewhere. Now, the, the popular view would be that it espouses a liberalism which is purely procedural, that it takes no view about content. But I don't think a state can do that. I think that actually that even a, a philosophical view of liberalism is a very substantive position. It regards equality as important, it regards freedom as important, and above all, it regards the individual as of paramount importance. So it's a very individualist view. So there are lots of substantive views there, and I would sign up to them, but what do they rest on and where do they come from? Again, going back to the Enlightenment, I suppose one product of that was the French Revolution and their slogan of egalité, fraternité, liberté, I mean equality and freedom and brotherhood. And there, I think it's very striking that each of those concepts has a very striking resonance in a Christian theological background. And I don't think that's a surprise because France came from a deeply Christian past. Yeah. And so even people, in a sense, trying to shake off the shackles of authoritarian religion, and particularly the Catholic Church, uh, were imbued with basic principles that I think were Christian in origin. You can't really believe in equality unless you think that all people were made equal in the sight of God. You can't really believe in freedom unless you believe God has given people free will. And, of course, the, the fraternity, brotherhood, uh, an old-fashioned word, but, I mean, it's, uh, it obviously invokes the fatherhood of God. People can't be brothers and sisters unless there's a common father. So all of those have, I mean, historically, at any rate, roots in a particular theological background. And the great question, and this is what applies in Europe particularly nowadays, though I think it also applies to the United States, is can you operate with these concepts while repudiating the theological background from which they've come. Now, there's a great debate in Europe about this. I mentioned the German philosopher and social theorist Habermas, who um, is not a theist, uh, but he recognizes that a lot of the uh, principles that operate in Christian, well, I was going to say Christian democracy, but in a democracy which has Christian roots in Europe, in fact, found their life because of Christianity. And there is a question, and he's very well aware of it, that once you denude the public sphere of any religious influence, of how all of these principles can go marching on through the generations. And, I mean, there was a great battle in Europe uh, over the Lisbon Treaty, I mean, not just over the political significance, but over the preamble as to whether it should make reference to the Christian heritage of Europe. And some countries in Europe were very keen that should happen. Um, the Pope, the previous Pope, spoke out very firmly in favor of that, and probably that was enough to put a lot of people in Europe against it. So, in the end, there wasn't any reference to the Christian heritage of Europe. And that's very significant because there is a battle for Europe's soul still going on. And France particularly believes in a policy of laicite, of getting all religion out of the public sphere, both yeah. symbolically as well as literally. I mean, so that you can't wear any religious dress. I mean, the current controversy in France, there's just been a recent report by a committee reporting to the National Assembly in France as to whether, in fact, the full face veil, a Muslim veil, should be allowed in public places in France. And there's considerable feeling that it should not be, and President Sarkozy has spoken out against it. Right. And it, because it's a religious symbol, and so all religious symbolism is out, but it isn't just symbolism, it's that all religion should be out of the public place. 
Now, that's different from the policy of other European countries, even the United Kingdom, which on the whole would be more tolerant of, of religious dress. And there are particular difficulties about full-face veils in particular situations, security, for instance. But uh, on the whole, they would allow people the freedom to dress as they will. And this has spread, of course, to... Uh, other religions, there are controversies about the British Airways sacked somebody because she wanted to wear a cross at work. I mean, not a particularly big cross, but oh no, no religious symbolism. And that case has been heard uh, by the Court of Appeal. There's a controversy at the moment in the United Kingdom about Sikhs, whether Sikh boys can wear ceremonial daggers, kirpans in school. Well, they're a potential danger because they're sharp knives. But should they, it's very much part of the Sikh religion and they should be allowed to wear them. Should they or not? In France, the answer would be definitely not. In Canada, the Supreme Court said yes because of the respect for religious freedom. So I find it very interesting that there are these battles about very often symbols, but they relate to something much deeper about how far Christian principles should underlie our democracy, how far... Uh, the basic principles of justice and fairness and equality are themselves rooted in Christianity. Now, to go back to my concern about equality, if you take all beliefs as equal, I think this leads to relativism, because what you're really saying is, we're not standing anywhere, we don't care what you believe, you can believe what you like, all beliefs are as good as, everybody, uh, as any other belief. And that is relativism, it's a refusal to make judgments, rational judgments about what's true, and it, it's a kind of pluralism that in the end says there's no point in believing anything because if any belief is as good as any other, well, it doesn't matter what you believe and it doesn't matter if you do believe. Well, I want to come back to relativism in a moment, but first one of the things that you said was about how there's this question of can we maintain values of equality and freedom while leaving behind the Christian roots that gave birth to those values in the society? Yes, and I think that's a particular question for Europe and also for the United States, because, of course, although you can argue about the separation of church and state in the United States, it's quite obvious that the, the beginning, the, the whole assumption was that the country was being founded on broadly theistic principles anyway, and God was mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, and uh, uh, there was an assumption that there were, in a sense, boundaries in all of this that in a, though one would respect different Christian denominations, it was within a broadly Christian ambit, perhaps taking in the Jews as well. Well, there's a lot I could say about that, but what I actually want to ask you about... Why, would you, you do, do disagree about with that? Well, I mean, it, it's true that, you know, most people were Christians just because they came from Europe, but there were qu quite a few of the founding fathers were deists as well, and quite a few of them were passionately against the traditional theistic religions, and they kept the entire concept of God out of the Constitution. It's the first secular constitution in the history of the planet. So it's a bit bizarre to emphasize the religious aspect of the founding of the United States, because in the context of history, it's the most you know secular nation in its time in, in some ways. Well, you realize that's a kind of very controversial statement even in the United States at the moment, isn't it? Because there are big arguments about whether it was secular or whether it was generally Protestant. Even people like Jefferson, who were, in a sense, very liberal theologically, maybe even, as you say, deists, were operating in what they knew was a generally Christian context. And the arguments about religious freedom in Virginia when uh, and over the statute of religious freedom were very much whether, in fact, they should widen the establishment to include other Christian denominations. The view that eventually one was that, that, that they shouldn't. But there was a very strong feeling, uh, even amongst great patriots like um, Patrick Henry, uh, that, that, that they should just widen the establishment and continue to, in fact, champion the various Christian denominations there. Obviously, people are, in a sense, reading back their own views onto this, but this is a, a very kind of fraught issue, I think, about precisely the relationship and assumptions of the relationship between Christianity and the founding fathers. And to say it's secular, well, you know, for every, every quote you can quote in support of that, there are others and actions by the first presidents which contradict that. So uh, it, it's very difficult. But what I think quite, is quite clear is that sociologically, the assumption of, of, of people was a kind of broadly Protestant assumption. 
whether they were paying lip service to it or really believed it. And don't forget, of course, at that time, America had been subject to a very strong evangelical revival, the Great Awakening. So there was a great religious feeling amongst a lot of the population, and that was fueling a lot of it. I mean, the struggle for religious freedom was a struggle by Baptists and Presbyterians against Anglicans in Virginia. It wasn't a struggle by free thinkers and deists. Right. But, I mean, I mean obviously this is all highly controversial, but I've, I, I do feel that the religious roots of the United States are very, very much deeper than some people, and perhaps even President Obama would, would like to admit. Well, and I'm not actually sure that you and I disagree on anything here. I think we're just putting emphasis on different places. Oh, yes. Now, I do want to get back to asking you about this notion that so many of the values that we enjoy today in Western society came from Christianity because yes. Europe was Christian. Yeah. But isn't it true that a lot of these values, of course, are part of other societies in the world? And so why should we assume that it's impossible to maintain these values unless we stick with the particular religion that was dominant when Europe came into its own. Yes, and, and I don't want to, to restrict a lot of claims only to Christianity. I mean, for instance, if we talk about human rights, the United Nations were very careful to try and get the agreement of people who weren't Christian, even though a lot of the people drawing up the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights were inspired by Christianity. So I think, what, if, again, if you believe in natural law and natural rights, you can see that these things could be recognized by all people without actually appealing specifically to Christianity. Uh, but I'm not sure how far you can just depend on the natural moral sense of people or, or the natural understanding of people without specific teaching to uphold freedom and equality. I mean, if you look at the history of Europe, freedom and uh, democratic freedoms particularly uh, haven't come easily. And the history of England has been one where it's taken centuries to build a lot of these up. And they've, particularly in England, have certainly come from a Christian basis. Now, the question I would want to pose is if you do away with the foundations and repudiate the Christian basis, can everything go on as it was. And I'm not at all sure that that will happen. I mean, I, you see, this is the great paradox of liberalism, that liberalism believes that everybody should be free to make up their own mind and should stand back, that it shouldn't impose a will, that the state shouldn't espouse any particular view. And yet liberalism, the belief in freedom, the belief in equality, the belief in the importance of individuals, uh, must itself be taught through the generations. So liberalism can't be neutral about itself, and it has to teach people why these things matter. Why are people equal? And I mean, th there is quite a, a, an issue here about why people should be willing to sacrifice their own interests for those of other people. And I think that there is therefore always going to be the problem if you repudiate one set of roots and don't put anything else in its place. I mean, if you can provide a good solid foundation of justification then that would be all right. But if you can't, if you just let it all free floating, then I think there's a problem about how it will be sustained through the generations. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one point to, that we might agree on is, well, first of all, we're both very concerned with relativism. Yes. And I almost think that if Europe was more Christian than it is today, then it would be in a better position to resist the human rights violations of the extremist or fundamentalist Muslims coming into Europe than the relativist liberals that are kind of currently dominating Europe. Yes, well, I think that uh, meshes in with a whole policy of so-called multiculturalism, which I yeah. think has been pursued in, in Britain and to some extent in Canada. And it, it's very much been a kind of hands-off policy of respecting communities and allowing them to pursue the, their own policies. I mean, at its extreme, you, you, you get then a kind of acceptance of polygamy. Now, polygamy is illegal in Britain, mm -hmm. but you can still get social security payments for more than one wife if you brought more than one wife into the country. Mm -hmm. And that, to my mind, is 
uh, I mean, whatever the arguments for and against polygamy, it's accepting something without having argued that one ought to accept it. Right. And it comes from this easy acceptance that, oh, well, it, that's their community, that's their practice. And obviously, that then begins to link up with other issues to do with the treatment of women. I mean, obviously, people's objection to polygamy is usually very often because it involves the subjugation of women. And there are all kinds of examples of forced marriages and the inability of women to operate freely in the context of a marriage and the way in which men have the upper hand in divorce and so on. And all of that could be administered by Sharia courts. Now, in Britain, that's illegal. I mean, people can go on a personal basis to a Sharia court and have get arbitration, but they can't have that enforced legally by the courts. And I don't think they should. I mean, there's an implicit big argument about that. But I think certainly just because that's their practice, we shouldn't accept it. And I think very often Muslims do expect that to be the policy that we stand by our historic principles in this country. I was at a meeting not long ago where a woman suddenly burst out, you can't do that, this is a Christian country. And I looked and I thought, gosh, I didn't know if I would have been willing to say that because, uh, I mean, people were rather thinking, well, that's imposing our will on other people. And then I stopped and looked at her and she was a visiting Pakistani lawyer, a Muslim, who hadn't been in the country very long, was looking at it from the outside, and she'd come with expectations about the principles that would operate. And she was aghast that we weren't living up to them. And I think we ought to have the courage to, to stand by those. I think it isn't intolerant. I think people expect it as long as we're fair and just. But, but at the moment, there is this uh, very kind of mealy-mouthed relativism that would almost say, well, you know, if that's their practice, let them subjugate their wives. And, and that is, I think, extremely difficult. If I can give just one example, I'm in Oxford and uh, a student I was talking to who'd come from Bangladesh to do a doctorate in Oxford and who was very fluent in English herself, had had to stay in lodgings for the first few weeks before she found proper lodgings and she'd stayed with a Bangladesh family on the edge of Oxford. And so I'd asked her, well, what were her first impressions of England? And she said, well, there's one thing that really shocked her and I wondered what she was going to say. And she said, the family I was staying with, the wife had been in England for 25 years and could not speak a word of English. Now, that is quite prevalent amongst Bangladeshi families, and it suggests, I mean, it's taking this multicultural policy to extreme lengths that the women, I mean, the men have to speak English if they're going to work, but the women are discouraged by their community from learning English. They live in their own small group, very often a group of villagers have come from somewhere in Bangladesh and come and just come and live near each other in a place like Oxford. And they have no contact with the wider community. They make no attempt to learn the language. And the country has been fool enough to let them get away with it. And yet it isn't in the interests of those women that they can't communicate with anybody around them. And I think that that just epitomizes something that's gone very wrong. Because the people are so afraid of being seen to impose their own view, their own way of life, their own judgments, that actually they let things happen which are really rather bad. Yeah, and I'm a big champion of people who are willing to stand up and say that, shall we say, the enlightened West has better values than some other cultures. I mean, certainly than the extremist Muslim cultures. I think it was Geert Wolders who wrote an article called Our Culture is Better, or you've got people like Ayan Hirsi Ali, and I'm sure there are some Christian ones as well, but I really feel there's this need, especially in Europe, to stand up for the values and say, look, maybe it's not politically correct multiculturalism here, but we've got to take a stand against the abuse of women. We've got to take a stand against this idea of violent world conquest. We've got to take a stand for some really important values. Yes. And the idea that you should respect Sharia law, which is, is growing in some quarters, yeah. is part of a kind of capitulation. of It's losing confidence in our own legal principles. Incidentally, I think it would be a very bad idea to have Sharia law. I mean, there was an argument about this in Canada. And I was talking to the um, special representative for religious freedom from the United Nations, who herself is a Pakistani. And I asked her what she thought about uh, Sharia law, and now she's had experience of it in a Muslim country. And she was absolutely opposed to, to it being used in Western countries. And she had a very good reason. She said there is no 
agreed basis for Sharia law. In practice, it's the local imam or whoever imposing his own interpretation, and there are different interpretations of the Quran in different places, and uh, there's no set procedure of appeal courts or a higher authority. And so, in the end, it's giving power to particular individuals yeah. to dominate the lives of people mm. uh, in a way that may not be fair or just. It isn't a proper legal system at all uh, with any safeguards or checks or balances. And I think that that would seem to me a very wise statement. And she'd opposed uh, Ontario's uh, flirting with the idea of allowing Sharia law, and she was opposed to, to any steps towards it in the United Kingdom. A, a lot of it in Europe is, of course, a loss of confidence in people's own institutions and our own history. Yeah. And that itself is extremely worrying. I think it's not just the decline of religion, it's the result of the appalling mess created by two world wars and what they led to. But it has created a very kind of volatile situation. There is, I think what you're getting at really is that, that there is a bit of a vacuum in Europe. And of course, if you leave a vacuum, anything can enter in. And going back to my insistence on looking at the Christian basis for things, you see, I would be happier if people were offering a sound alternative, but they're not. I mean, the alternative is all too often just relativism, just let everybody believe what they want. Yeah. And that's just then a vacuum which allows anybody who comes in who with definite views, with the courage of their convictions, to begin to take over. And that's an extreme danger. Yeah. And I think part of the problem might be there is that when you take Christianity out of the picture, then... You know, there's no particular moral theory that atheists hold to. There's all kinds of moral theories, and they, you know, it's often said that hurting atheists is like hurting cats. You just can't get them to agree on anything. Whereas in a nation where Christianity has a hold, there's a large degree of agreement about values, and so there's more cohesion and insistence on those values, whereas it's much easier to sink into a culture of relativism when you take God away. Yeah, oh, yes. Well, all through my philosophical career, I've been writing books against relativism. I mean, it goes back for nearly 40 years now. I wrote a book called Reason and Commitment in the 1970s against relativism. And it seems to me, I mean, it, even not looking at it specifically in the religious context, it so undermines the notion of reason. It undermines science. It undermines mm -hmm. history. Yeah. It undermines everything. It undermines social anthropology. In the end, without any kind of firm idea of human nature, and a common re world we all live in, everything falls to bits. So I, I think it's a, a very great intellectual danger as well as a social danger. Well, Roger, I just don't know what we're going to disagree about here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to ask you about your next book, which is about religious freedom. Well, it will be called Equality, Freedom and Religion, and I'm particularly interested in the playoff between the demands of equality and the demands of freedom. This has been particularly relevant recently, I find, because uh, the present Pope attacked the British government for its uh, moves towards equality. There's an equality bill going through Parliament at the moment, and Pope Benedict was uh, created quite a furore in, in Britain by criticizing the way in which the government was, was uh, stressing equality. I think he felt at the expense of religious freedom. Now, Roger, equality with regard to what? Well, that is a precisely the issue. I mean, it's called the Equality Bill, and it's equality of everything. But then I think if you, if you were in a, what you can prove to be a disadvantaged group, you, you've got a lot going for you. But basically, it's taking, going back to what we were talking about before, it's also equality of belief. So there's a great reluctance to actually stand on even the Christian history of this country. So all beliefs have to be treated equally. None ought to be privileged. Of course, what uh, I think Pope Benedict would get particularly worried about was when um, there's this great stress against discrimination against homosexuals, for instance, and then that meant that Catholic adoption agencies were forced to uh, either accept gay couples adopting or go out of business, and they've rather chosen to go out of business. And I think he was particularly upset about that. Mm. And this, I think, this does touch on a, a basic theme that I want to look at in my book, because I think that in a democratic society, there are always going to be issues about how we should live, which laws we should have, and they won't always be to the taste of people, for instance, who are particularly religious or Christian. But I do feel that religion ought to be respected more than it is. 
or religion as well as Christianity, but I think in a sense I'd say that from a more Christian basis. But I do think because we ought to respect free will, I mean, this was one of Locke's great arguments in his letter concerning toleration, that God really only values a free response, that coercing people isn't doing the will of God because God doesn't want people to be made to, to respond to him. That isn't a proper response. It isn't what they're really doing. So Locke was emphasizing the importance of a free belief. But going back to the importance of religion, another thing I'm involved with in Oxford is a research project in the cognitive science of religion, which is emphasizing how religion is natural in human beings. Now, this is a scientific project, and I'm looking at the philosophical uh, implications of it. Mm-hmm. It's obviously open to, to scientific discussion, but there's a lot of evidence that suggests that quasi-religious impulses, I mean, religion is a bit of a catch-all category, but re- impulses that give rise to religion are very deeply rooted in all human beings. There's a tendency mm. to see purpose in things, to see personal agency, mm. to perhaps and a willingness to view people as disembodied. That's why people worship ancestors, to see the oneself as acting under the sight of some of God or somebody who knows what you're doing, and that makes uh, some kind of moral sanction. And there are all kinds of reactions that piece together to, in fact, form a religious response to the world. Uh, So much so that I think one could pretty firmly say that religion is a universal phenomenon. Now, uh, one consequence of this is that atheism would be regarded as, I think, a second-order thing. It's a bit like distinguishing between religion and theology. Theology would be a reflection on these basic impulses. But the impulses are there now. It's open to atheists to say they're childlike, they're irrational, we must go out of them. But they are there as part of our basic human nature. They're what it is to be human. And I think if you thwart them too much, then you're squashing something that enables many humans to flourish. Uh, it is almost as deeply rooted as the desire for food and drink. And it's a natural way, it's part of our general cognitive makeup. I mean, it isn't just that we're programmed to believe in God, but we have cognitive mechanisms that help, amongst other things, to produce that kind of reaction. So given that it's deeply rooted in human nature, I think that any society has to take very firm note of this. And therefore, I think that in all the arguments about equality and equal treatment, not of beliefs and not privileging beliefs, which, as I've said, are questionable, I still think that there's a strong case for accommodating conscience and particularly religious conscience in particular situations. And one of the battles nowadays is whether that should be done uh, by legislatures, by parliament, by Congress, uh, or whether it should be done at the level of courts protecting freedom of religion. But I'm convinced that 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 is a a very important thing. And one of the, the great battles at the moment, of course, particularly over the notion of equality, is that people back the idea of equality and non-discrimination by appealing to human rights. But the right to religious freedom is an important human right. And I think what's happening at the moment is that other human rights are being emphasized at the expense of that. Now, that doesn't mean that freedom of religion overrides everything all all the time, but it does mean that it be given due weight and it should be balanced against these others. And at the moment, equality seems to win all too often. I think this was what the Pope was worrying about, but I mean, there are plenty of people, non-Catholics, non-Christians who worry about it too, rather than respecting freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. Well, yeah, and I think we need a balance between freedom of religion and other types of equalities and freedoms. I think, you know, we both agree that we shouldn't allow freedom of religion concerns to allow certain societies to abuse women. No, well, that's why I'm saying it's a balance. Yeah. But what I'm saying at the moment is that that I think very often in um, religious debates and in the courts, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe, perhaps not so much in Canada, where I think they would respect freedom of religion, though they make it very subjective there. But here, there is much more emphasis on non-discrimination than there is on freedom of religion. One of the very first cases, we've got a a Supreme Court now in the United Kingdom. People weren't sure that it meant much more than that they were going to be in a separate building, the judges, but but I I think it might. (laughs) Uh, They moved across Parliament Square to another building. But now there's an official Supreme Court separate from Parliament, as opposed to being the the House of Lords, uh, making final judgment, the judges in the House of Lords. And one of their first judgments 
concerned the criteria for being an Orthodox Jew. Now, it was a case regarding entrance to a school run for Orthodox Jews, which was state-funded. And this was challenged by other non-Orthodox Jews who are very much in the minority in this country, but, but there are Reform Jews, etc., uh, who are challenging this. Now, the problem with that is that uh, the Supreme Court waded in and made a ruling that, uh, although not intentionally, this was a form of racial discrimination and that they shouldn't do it. But what they were doing was in a sense making a theological judgment about who is to count as a Jew, which was against what the chief rabbi was arguing. And I think that's very dangerous territory for a court. I think that there was room there for respecting freedom of religion much more. Well, Europe in general and the United Kingdom in particular, they're facing a lot of crises in these areas over the next decade or so. And you've been sharing with us about some of them. What are some other things that you'd like to see about religion in the public square over the next couple of decades in Europe? Well, I think that people shouldn't get too obsessed with, with Muslims. I mean, they get all the publicity. Hindus in England get very cross about this because they're ignored, because they're not going around blowing people up or threatening to. Huh. They get ignored, and all of the publicity is about Muslims. And there's, I mean, some reason for that, because there's a great worry about the radicalization of some Muslim youth. Yeah. But Muslims, I mean, in England, there are a very, very small percentage of the population. There are a significant number of Hindus who get more or less ignored. So I think there's a danger that when people threaten violence, they get too much attention. And I think we've got to be very wary of that. And it does carry with it certain problems because going back to multiculturalism, there is a great reluctance on the part of many people to criticize Muslims because it looks as if it were near racist. I mean, they come right. from a wide variety of races. There's a great reluctance to be seen to do it. So very often, a lot of particularly secularists find the way out by attacking religion. And I find all too often in England, when people are attacking religion and the corrosive effect of so-called faith schools, for instance, what they're talking about are Muslims. And I'm afraid then all religion gets tarred by the same brush. And they think, well, the only way of dealing with Muslims is to get all religion out of public life. But that is extremely dangerous because, as I've been indicating, I think it then actually begins to stifle some of the voices that could provide principled opposition to some of the things that we would object to. And indeed, what the secularists are objecting to Many Christian, most well, Christians would object to. So, in mm -hmm. fact, I'm afraid I think very often secularists operating with a Christian ethic without Christianity, but they're afraid, in a sense, to pick out the Muslims, and so they think, well, let's just say all religion. It's easy. Yeah. And uh, there are uh, tremendous dangers in that because, therefore, in the end, they denude the public square of very often some of the most morally motivated people that they could use in their defense. Well, Roger, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Right, well, thank you very much.